Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. And welcome to Utterly Moderate, the podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideology. We like to think of ourselves as the alternative to cable news. I'm Allison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing today, Allie? Well, I am doing extremely well. I'm in the mood for a laugh. Lawrence, can I tell you my favorite joke? Let me think about that. I guess the answer is yes. Go ahead. Excellent. That's the right answer. <laughs> what is Irish and stays outside all winter long? What? Patio furniture. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite joke because you think it's going in one direction, but it's going in another direction. And I think it's appropriate for the, the month of March since it's St. Patrick's Day. Um, and it's also been snowy and all of our patio furniture is freezing. But here's my here's my second favorite joke. Okay. What is black and white and red all over? What? It's a newspaper, Lawrence. You were thinking it was a skunk. No, it's a newspaper. And that is because today we are going to be talking about the news. And we have a very special guest, Professor Michael Anthony Dees, who is from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Professor Dees has a tremendous amount of real world experience. Um, not only does he teach and study and read about journalism today, he also worked at the Chicago Tribune as an editor on the national foreign and news editing staffs. So we are very lucky to be discussing modern media and modern journalism with Professor Dees. But, you know, before we get there, this is a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart because this is what I study too. So if it's okay with you, I just wanted to, I wanted to set the table a little bit. This is some of the stuff that I think is important for everybody to remember when we're talking about news and information and content today that all gets lumped into this big bucket that people call the media. And journalism is really different than opinion. Journalism is fact-finding and, you know, and reporting. And the punditry, the opinion stuff, that's analysis. And there's analysis that's good, there's analysis that's bad, but it's really different from what journalism is. And in truth, the kind of journalism that we get today, uh, we get a lot of it. Right. I mean, Lawrence, I'm, I know that you have a very um, you have a very rich media diet that you get news and information from a wide variety of sources. Is that absolutely that's fair. So when we talk about media, what we're really it's the plural of medium. So really, we're talking about different platforms. So without naming any news organizations, tell me. How do you get your news? Do you get it from TV, radio, podcast? How do you get your news? I get my news almost exclusively from the internet. So I visit news sites. Okay, news sites. Does that mean that they are the websites from newspapers? Does that mean that they are what we call digitally native news sites? Something like Politico that was born online. I want to apologize for my microphone quality. It's going to be going in and out this episode, and I just have no control over it. But yeah, uh, some of the stuff is native to the web. So sites like Politico and Axios, and then some are more traditional newspapers that are on the web. So Wall Street Journal, New York Times, etc. And that, I think, is how many people actually get their their news and information from from a variety of sites. It used to be back in the old days that, you know, when when I was a child, uh, you weren't, of course, born then because you're you're so young, so painfully, painfully young yourself. <laughs> but, you know, when I was a kid, there were three TV channels and you got those from a satellite on top of your house. Um, and there was a newspaper that was delivered in the morning and then there was radio. And then technology came and changed everything around. And in some ways, that's fantastic because it, it really has been just a flood 
of information. And so if we want to find out something, we can find it out pretty quickly now. And that that was not the case. We can also find out news from all around the world. And, and that's also a really big benefit. But the bad part is there's so much news and content and um, opinion, and, and they're not the same things that I think a lot of people get confused. So, you know, when we're talking about print media, we're talking about the newspaper that you can hold in your hand, but also a newspaper website, which really feels more like the internet, you know, and that's a really different medium. Um, but then there's radio and a surprising number of Americans listen to the radio, the like terrestrial radio, AM and FM, um, mostly in their cars, but now there's satellite radio. And there's broadcast television, which is, you know, those are the three channels I got when I was a kid, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And then there's all the cable news outlets and cable channels that are there. And then with the internet, you have those digitally native sites, and you also have lots and lots of other websites that you could peruse for facts and information and conspiracies and, and from what people tell me, pornography. So between <laughs> all of those, um, there's just a lot of content to be had. And it's hard for people sometimes to sort through it. Um, I, I liken it occasionally to, you know, if someone yells like, quick, you know, go turn on a TV show and, and you're looking at your TV, which has streaming platforms and things that have been DVR'd and, and all of this stuff. I will 100% of the time just put on Law and Order, um, all of which I've seen, you know, multiple times and some of which are deeply problematic in today's day and age. But it's like the only thing it's my go to. Right. Because it's comfortable. Um, it's, you know, episodic. And at the end of the episode, you know that there will be a conclusion and that kind of comfort food sometimes spills into the news and information that we get. And that's actually a um, phenomenon called confirmation bias, where Americans will seek out either journalism that they know will um, make them feel good or happy, uh, or they will seek out more likely opinion and punditry that they want to hear because it reaffirms what they already believe. Right. And these days, because there's so much out there, we can choose the flavor of news and opinion that, that we get. And that is proving to be a little bit problematic because it's not just that we're having, you know, two takes on the same issue. It's right now that issues themselves are not even agreed upon as being issues. And so as we go forward and try and figure out what is good news, and by that, I don't mean, you know, a puppy was saved. Oh, Lady Gaga's puppies were saved. Like, that's really good news. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that that really affects any person in America or the world, except Lady Gaga. And, you know, Godspeed to her dog walker, who's, I think, recovering nicely in the hospital from being shot. Um, you know, that's not that's not the kind of news that we necessarily need, but it sure is more interesting than, say, you know, trying to dig through the different incarnations of the stimulus bill. That's kind of tough. That's tough work. And certainly, I think Americans can be forgiven for wanting to get that kind of um, lighter fare. Right. It's that media diet that I, I frequently talk about. And, you know, the lighter fare is the dessert sometimes the pasta dish. Um, but we need to have the we need to have the good news, like the solid protein news, either a nice grilled chicken breast or a steak, you know, whatever it is that you're that's going to keep you healthy. And um, sometimes that's difficult to find. So the episode today is going to examine the different ways that we can actually trust the journalism that is given to us. Um, and we are afforded a lot of really good journalism today. And so I know that one of the things that I want is for the American public to trust journalism more, because right now we're at this place where if a large percentage of the country doesn't trust the journalists who are providing us with legitimate sourced fact checked information, then we're never going to be able to agree on what is an important issue. And it's going to breed the kind of cynicism that I'm really worried about because with so much content, you know, we can just, we can eschew the news altogether. If you want an all sports diet, you can have that easily. That doesn't even take very much effort to do. So 
what we're not going to do is try and convince you that some sources are bad. Instead, what we're going to do is come up with a really good set of criteria where you could judge what makes a good news source and good journalism good. And that way you can seek out better information. And maybe when we're all on the same page about facts and about the stories that we read, um, then we can get about to the business of disagreeing on the solutions that we need for the troubles of today. But we need to get back to a place where we have a common set of agreed upon facts. And there's really just one good way to do that, which is establish how journalists do their jobs and why it is we can trust them. Right. And we know that a lot of people, both liberal and conservative, have a hard time trusting the media. But we know this is not because the good media sources have turned bad or disappeared. It's because there's been an explosion in the number of media outlets over the years with the advent of cable news and the proliferation of Internet news sites. And many of these news outlets are of very low quality. But there's as many high quality and trustworthy news outlets at your fingertips as ever before. You just need to know where to look. So what Ali and I have done in consultation with our guest today, Northwestern University journalism professor and former Chicago Tribune editor Michael Dees, we've actually developed a guide to help listeners to identify trustworthy news sites. And you can find this guide by clicking on the quality news section of our site, utterlymoderate.com. So we've identified 18 news sites that provide high quality, reliable news with limited bias. And you might wonder how we've done this. Well, analysts from a variety of independent organizations, including Ad Fontes Media, All Sides, and NewsGuard, have subjected this news content to rigorous, objective, and rules-based standards. And the analysts determined that these 18 sites have scored highly on measures of quality, reliability, and bias. So if you go to our website, you can see the trustworthy sites that we identify. And let's say you choose three or four of these reliable news outlets and you stick to those sources each week, you'd give yourself a healthy news diet and you would be well-informed. This section of our site, you can also read our guide to identifying good news media. Um, it helps you understand the fact-checking and quality control practices that reputable news organizations adhere to. And you can watch a series of short video clips associated with each section. Additionally, there's numerous tools linked on this page to help you understand how to judge good media sources for yourself, such as links to the aforementioned Ad Fontes Media, All Sides, and NewsGuard, as well as the Pointer Institute, the Stony Brook University Center for News Literacy, Harvard University's Neiman Journalism Lab, and much more. And there's also a variety of fact-checking websites linked on the quality news page of our site, if you want to investigate the veracity of a particular news story. Okay, so now's a good time to bring on our guest, Michael Dees. He is a faculty member at the very prestigious Medill Journalism School at Northwestern University. He also spent a number of years at the Chicago Tribune as an editor. He has been a fellow at multiple media institutes, including the Pointer Institute and the Maynard Institute, Michael Dees is the perfect guest to come on the show and talk about the work that journalists do and explain to us why we should trust the work that's been done by journalists at reputable news outlets. So, Michael Dees, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for the invitation. I think we want to begin knowing a little bit more about you. So, can you tell us about your experiences, where you've worked, and how you got to where you are today. Um, I pursued journalism when I joined the U.S. Navy uh, nearly 40 years ago. And I received my education, my initial education, uh, at the Defense Information School, uh, commonly known as DEMFOS. Uh, after serving five years in the Navy, I returned to civilian life, uh, where in which I worked as a PR writer. And after two years as a PR writer, I applied for the job at the Chicago Tribune. 
Uh, I landed a job on the news desk, which is the design desk. Uh, my graphic arts background uh, opened the door for me. So I worked as a page designer, laying out uh, various sections of the paper uh, for eight years. And then I moved over to the National Foreign News Desk, uh, editing front page stories for the main section of the paper, uh, which required me to communicate uh, with uh, colleagues who were in the field, uh, national correspondents as well as foreign correspondents. And some of the memorable times uh, in the newsroom were often during elections and, and during the uh, war, the Iraq war, you know, after 9-11. Um, that's where I really saw um, the metal of my, my colleagues who were actually in the trenches, you know, in terms of in respect to their homes being, uh, their residences being bombed out, uh, you know, having to think on the fly in terms of how to, you know, help them, even though they were thousands of miles away. My military experience prepared me for the rigors of the newsroom, all right, because the training in the military was regimented. It was militaristic. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. It just, it just means that it was structured. It was clear. And that enabled me to become, I believe, an effective journalist. Um, during my 15 years at the uh, Chicago Tribune. So I love the idea that your experience in the military was good training for journalism. I think that many Americans have this idea that a newsroom is a bunch of guys in fedoras and they're sitting like banging out things on a typewriter for whatever reason, even though it's, you know, 2021. And, uh, you know, and someone yells like, let's go to print, you know, and they just sort of run and do it. Like that doesn't sound like the military to me, but, um, you know, I haven't served, so I'm not sure, uh, if that's true. Um, what was it about the military that really led you to be such a good journalist? Attention to detail. That's the emphasis in the military, attention to detail. And of course, for journalism, attention to detail is uh, vital. You know, it's vital to our credibility. So it was, so editing, um, I've always believed that I've been well-suited for editing. You know, I think I've always had a mentality for editing. So, um, you know, for example, um, the way I um, uh, verify copy or, or uh, vet copy, you know, I approach copy as if I am a prosecuting attorney. You know, I cross-examine and I prosecute everything. So my job is to discredit uh, the content. So my initial goal is to discredit the content. And then if it can withstand my scrutiny, then I begin polishing the copy. Because the main purpose, the, the main role of an editor, in my opinion, is not to demolish copy, is to polish the copy. But it must go through a rigorous vetting uh, process. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that's a really important point that not only do journalists themselves verify stories for accuracy to sift through as many documents as they possibly can, talk to as many sources as they possibly can to confirm a story, but then there's an additional layer of quality control, of fact-checking before a story gets to print where you prosecute the information and make sure it can withstand pretty serious scrutiny. How do you know what to prosecute? And how do you know what tools you have to do that kind of prosecution? The way I prosecute, I leave no stone unturned. Basically, I vet all sources. Now, here's uh, something that I think is critical for any editor is that whenever I handle content, regardless of whether it's an investigative piece, uh, a feature piece, human interest piece, obituary, libel is always at the forefront of my brain. You know, libel uh, can, can have an impact on not only the originator or the writer, but the editor or anyone else who's had any involvement with that content. So I am quite aware in terms of the far-reaching ramifications of that. So I think libel is always at the forefront of my, my mind. 
I've told my students on a number of occasions that uh, if they were to say, for example, be sued or find themselves in a litigious situation, losing a libel suit would make a government loan seem like a Christmas gift. <laughs> right. Uh, and what I mean by that, yeah, I think a number of us remember the Rolling Stone article on the rape case at the University of Virginia. Well, in that case, the university was sued for more than, I believe, $3 million. The journalist uh, was sued for a little less than $2 million. Even though the news operation picked up the, the damages, it was far-reaching because I don't believe that journalist is working in the industry any longer. So it's, 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 I think by protecting, the, protecting yourselves, yourself, you're protecting your organization. You don't want that to come back on you. Right. So I think what you said about these multiple layers of fact checking and quality control was really important that reporters are looking for as many sources as possible to corroborate something. They're looking through a number of documents. There's an additional layer with editors making sure they can verify all this information. But also we should acknowledge that organizations make mistakes and when they do, they correct them. They update stories. They tell listeners that they're updating stories and making corrections. They retract a story if they need to, right? Well, that's where the corrections and clarification section enters the picture. Any reputable news organization should have a clar clarifications and, and uh, corrections uh, section. Because as you just stated, you're, what we're saying is that we're credible. You know, that we don't make, we don't, it's not that we don't make mistakes, but when we do make mistakes, we do acknowledge those mistakes and we try to rectify them as quickly as possible. Right. And a reputable news organization would make those changes prominently and they wouldn't do it in secret, right? Like you're reading a story, you can see that it's been updated. It'll tell you what part of it's been updated, when it was updated, et cetera. Exactly. Exactly. For a uh, for print publication. Yes. Uh, for online content, uh, I think various uh, outlets handle that differently in terms in respect to perhaps a little blurb that there were uh, corrections made in the, you know, in the content. But yes, uh, wherever the platform uh, or the medium, I think is, is responsible for that outlet to uh, be transparent with the uh, news consumers. Can you go through the process? of how a journalist is assigned a story to cover, how it then comes back to the editor to be edited, um, you know, all the fact checking that's done within that. How long normally does a journalist have to cover a story? And I know that there are some really huge stories that take months, but um, can you just talk us through kind of the, the timeline, please? All right, well, it varies. You know, it varies from uh, operation to operation. Now, generally, now, uh, most journalists, if they're reporters, are on a beat, you know. So a beat is simply maybe a reporter covering the education or politics or government or sports. So in those instances, the reporters are basically there on they're constantly on the job, uh, you know, trying to tease out potential stories uh, from their sources. Now, in instances of, uh, let's say, breaking news, it again, it depends on location, uh, who's available at the time. You know, so if you're speaking in respect to local news, whoever whoever is on on call, or who's who's ever available, um, will be tapped to handle that story. In respect to deadlines, again, it depends. If it's a um, spot news story, which is a story that's happening in real time. Basically, the reporter is expected to uh, report, uh, gather the facts, and write as quickly as possible. Now, if it's on deadline, let's say, for example, news breaks before deadline, let's say an hour or, or hour or 45 minutes before deadline, it's vital for the editor to be able to uh, gather the, the details, write quickly, and send whatever he or she has at the time. We'll publish that and then the, the content, and then maybe for a second edition we can clean up uh, the copy. But generally, uh, based on my experiences and, and given the, uh, the journalists with whom I've worked, generally the first publication of the story is rather solid. 
based on my experience working in the newsroom. Michael, can you explain a little bit how stories are verified and why readers should trust that you guys have done your job to make sure that they are accurate? First, attribution is key. You know, who's saying what? Um, the point behind that is that we want to communicate to the uh, news consumers that I, as a reporter, am not saying this. This is this is someone else said this. So as a reporter, I am the conduit through which that information is being disseminated. I'm just a tool. I should not be a part of the narrative whatsoever. Also, I encourage reporters when dealing with sources to call back sources, pick up the phone, call back sources to ensure that the information is accurate. Now, what I typically would do, I would uh, background the source first. I would do my own background and, and, and uh, research. So if I were to interview, say you, um, Lawrence, or you, uh, Ali, uh, for a story, I would background you. I would make sure everything checks out. As a journalist or as a reporter, I'm not a stenographer. It's incumbent upon me to vet that information. Here's something that is not discussed on, I haven't heard this discussed by anyone really, that editing and reporting go hand in hand. Solid editors are generally very solid uh, reporters and writers. Um, and I've said this on numerous occasions. Uh, an editor who doesn't know how to report or write is as dangerous as a, uh, a surgeon who doesn't understand anatomy. Content editors or assignment editors uh, assess the structure, the completeness, and overall quality of stories. You know, while uh, copy editors or line editors uh, verify the details such as, and again, this is not a limited list, uh, to, you know, such as names, uh, ages, uh, job titles, uh, locations, assertions, quotations, uh, statistics, historical details, and even informational graphics. And again, this is not an exclusive list, but just to kind of give you a general idea of what the process entails. But here's something else that, I, you know, this is this is not uh, is not discussed. Whenever I work on a piece or edit a piece, I think of it in an archivalistic sense. And what I mean by that, you know, we often produce content for today's audience without uh, consideration for future generations. So whenever I edit, I edit uh, with the mindset of historicity, uh, contextuality. Uh, you know, posterity. Accuracy is the most important aspect of journalism. You know, um, even a small mistake uh, could potentially carry far-reaching ramifications on the lives of millions. That's particularly why uh, accuracy is emphasized uh, where I teach at the Medill School of Journalism, where um, students earn Fs for one factual error in their stories. And that has been a decades-long practice. Do reporters ever get upset if an editor says, you know what, we weren't able to verify this one piece of a story and therefore you're going to have to change the story or we can't run it at all? Well, based on my experience, uh, most writers appreciate editors who are, who are diligent. Um, in fact, I have one friend who constantly... Uh, or profusely thanks me for uh, identifying mistakes and just saving him from embarrassment. Yeah, so basic, uh, wise reporters appreciate and understand the value of having um, an aggressive uh, editor. It's easier to identify someone else's uh, mistakes as opposed to your own. So I realized that uh, whenever I write something, I send it to my editor and I just tell my editor just to have at it you know, discredit it if all possible. Can you talk a little bit about the times that maybe you can't really rely on one source because maybe they aren't trustworthy? So you have like a leak from the White House, right? And you aren't really sure of the motivations of this person. Maybe they're giving you one side of the story. Can, can you talk a little bit about the efforts that reporters might make to ensure that this is accurate to corroborate this claim? A good reporter or a solid reporter should interview as many people as possible. 
Yeah, you, you do want to co corroborate the information, particularly if it's a, uh, a sensitive story, you know, if it's an investigative piece, you definitely want to corroborate the information. And let's say, for example, if a reporter were to receive different responses, that could be included in the story and we can leave it to the reader or the news consumer to draw his or her own inferences. When you were at the Chicago Tribune, was that really high level of quality control and fact checking predominant in your experience? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, when I was in the industry, um, journalists, both reporters and editors, were so intentional about accuracy that we often got into fights with each other. So it was, un, it was not uncommon for, say, for example, on the um, news desk where, in which uh, colleagues would go after each other. So let's say if I were, um, if I edited a story and uh, one of my colleagues back read me and saw a mistake, they'll call you out or they'll bring it to your attention and vice versa, you know, respectfully. How do you know that you could trust a source and could you explain anonymous sourcing? Because I, I have heard from a lot of Americans that they think that if if a news organization says that there's an anonymous source, that they've made it up. So can you talk about verifying those, those sources and anonymous sources too, please? All right. Generally, we should avoid using anonymous sources for the you know, reasons that you just stated. Uh, the only times that we will use anonymous sources if we're trying to protect the identity and if that source is quite valuable. So if we're speaking in respect to the White House, Maybe the information is so important that we must publish it, but the individual understandably cannot disclose his or her, does, doesn't want us to disclose the name. So we think that it is um, it's appropriate to protect that individual in those instances. Now, there are also instances in which we, uh, we may uh, stumble upon information or receive information and the source doesn't want to go on the record whatsoever, not even anonymously. Now, in that instance, we will find someone else to corroborate that information. So, you know, if you think of uh, Watergate and Deep Throat, Deep Throat just basically provided the crumbs and then the reporters found uh, other sources to corroborate that information. One of the most important functions of the press is to hold those in power accountable. And so a lot of these stories, it's information that is really vital for the public to know. And that if you didn't protect the reporter's identity, I mean, these people are having their information posted online. They're having their, their lives threatened. They're having their families' lives threatened, their children's lives threatened. And sometimes when it comes to information that's so vital to the public interest, that's so vital to hold those in power accountable, it is appropriate to protect sources' identities. Our job as journalists, we're the public's watchdog. All right, so we're representing the public. That's our primary role. Whatever we produce, whatever content we produce, we're facilitating conversation in this public platform. There is a large segment of the population who believes that the mainstream media are liberally biased. Can you speak to that and explain why there are so many accusations of bias, where these accusations come from. If you've seen any evidence of bias in your experience, how you try and prevent any kind of ideological bias in your work and what you encourage among your students now. Media is, a, I think, is a loaded term. You know, media blurs the line between, uh, you know, operations and the practice of journalism. So when, and I understand what, you, uh, what you're saying, when we're speaking in respect to media, we're speaking in terms of newspapers, broadcast, magazine, internet, what have you. But really, technically, the media is a tool. You know, it's the channels through which the information is, is uh, funneled or disseminated. And journalism is totally separate. I think even those operations that are, say, for example, consider left-leaning or conservative, I think that they make an effort to uh, report straight down the middle. Uh, for example, when I worked at the Chicago Tribune, which is a Republican newspaper, you know, if you're speaking in respect to the opinion section, all right, 
in respect to news, reporters were straight arrows in respect to reporting the news. So the media includes these talking heads. And this is what uh, this is where a number of citizens uh, have difficulty differentiating. They, they confuse media personalities with journalists. All right. And media personalities are just that they're commentators. All right. And they're espousing their viewpoints. But many in the public sphere interpret that as news and it's not news. You know, with uh, respect to cable news, there are a number of shows that are uh, self-titled shows. They're shows. All right. Uh, That's not news. Now, real news is, say, for example, when you tune into NBC News, ABC, CBS, those journalists are just delivering the facts. All right. They're just reporting. They're not dressing it up with their points of view. Even intellectually dishonest pundits. Uh, some uh, mistake them for journalists, and they're not. Um, I've heard, I won't name any uh, media personalities, but I've had conversations with uh, some friends who I consider to be highly intelligent, and they, and, they, and they make references to these individuals as journalists, and I said they're not journalists. That's probably the reason that viewers have this per- perception of the media. I often tell my students, imagine that you go to the hardware store, you go to Home Depot or you go to Lowe's or or any hardware store and you find somebody there who really knows what they're talking about and they're really helping you. They have really expert advice about how to do some home project that you're working on. And then there's four customers who are standing near you. They hear what you're talking about and they jump in and these four customers have no idea what they're talking about. Some are offering advice that has no basis in reality whatsoever. Some aren't even talking about the same topic. Now you have five people standing there talking in your face, giving you all this information. And it might seem like, oh my gosh, there's, you know, the overwhelming majority of people who give advice about, you know, home improvement today, give bad advice. Well, there's still just as much good advice there as there ever was in this conversation. If you actually identify who the good expert is who's still giving you valuable expertise, there's just been this explosion of non-experts. There's been this explosion of bad information all around you. And I I see that like the media ecosystem, right? There's still as many, if not way more outlets that offer you really good news today. The problem has just been the explosion of the really bad outlets. You know what, uh, Lawrence, you hit the nail around the head. The combination of civic ignorance and media illiteracy <laughs> um, exacerbates the current situation. So, yes, as you stated, we can produce solid journalism, but if the public is not predisposed to interpreting that information or, or, or if they're not receptive to that information, what's the use? Can you talk a little bit about the media diet, a healthy media diet? I always encourage my students, maybe pick a source that's sort of middle of the road. So maybe pick a source like, um, you know, Axios or Reuters or the AP, something like that. Maybe pick one that's maybe a little right of center, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Pick one that's maybe a little bit left of center, like the Washington Post. And generally speaking, if you're reading that sort of basket of, of sources, if that's your media diet for the week, Generally speaking, you're going to get a really good idea of what's going on and little subtle differences in how things are covered from one paper to the next. When you look at the weight of the evidence, when you look at all those sources together, you'll get a pretty well-rounded idea of what's happening in the world, right? Exactly. So, you know, you, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal and some other publications. Essentially, when readers read those stories, they should still walk away with the same understanding in terms of what the story is about. You know, uh, writers within the same publication will write stories, approach the story differently. So if you and I were reporters and we wrote about the same uh, um, news story, we would write our stories differently based on our personal lens. But when the reader reads our, read our stories, our respective stories, they should still walk away with the general understanding what the story is about. There shouldn't be any um, deviation from the facts. Could we talk a little bit about how news these days seems to be splitting apart 
into different ecosystems, into different spheres of information. And the toll that that takes on our own media literacy, um, on, on the kind of the value of knowledge that we are able to get when there's so much information at our fingertips, but instead, you know, many of us are, are choosing the flavor of news that we want. Um, and what do you what do you talk to your students about in terms of this? In respect to um, the silos, I presume, I've found the silos, the silos exist in the cable news area where we are dealing with uh, media personalities. And that's where I think most of the country is basically there. I think that's that's creating these this hyperpartisan climate. I still believe that uh, traditional legacy news that generally speaking, those outlets are still trying to play it straight down the middle. All right. Uh, you know, the, the New York Times have been accused as being left leaning, but I believe that it's still credible. It's credible because I believe the reporters still approach the stories, uh, you know, following the traditional uh, principles of journalism. And I could say that for others. Now, what I find interesting, forgive me for deviating, you know, the Wall Street Journal falls into this category. But uh, little do people realize is that, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch is really the owner of the Wall Street Journal through the News Corporation. And he's also uh, has ownership. Um, um, he owns Fox as well, along with a number of other uh, outlets as well. So it's interesting that there's two different approaches. One which is totally off the reservation and the other <laughs> that follows the, uh, the foundational uh, principles of journalism and is owned by the same individual. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the media being a middleman between the public and information and the importance of not removing that middleman? I hear this saying all the time and it really bothers me. Uh, I hear it from liberals and from conservatives. They'll say, do your own research. And there's just a fundamental problem with that statement, which is if I were to say, well, I believe that the earth is round and somebody were to say, well, I think it's flat and you shouldn't believe those scientists. You should do your own research. Well, I can't. I'm not a scientist. And so I have to rely on people who know more than me to tell me where to look, to tell me what information is important, to tell me how to interpret that information, etc. And the media plays a crucial role in providing that middleman. So identifying when information is important, uh, you know, when events have happened, uh, bringing it to my attention, helping me to understand it in, in a way that is accessible to me. So for instance, take an issue like climate change, right? How does the public know when a study has been conducted, when the scientific community agrees that it's really, really important? Uh, how do they have somebody explain it to them in a way that they can understand? the media plays that role, right? And without the media, we're all sort of adrift. There's this great quote from Lee McIntyre who wrote the book Post-Truth. He says, the cognitive bias has always been there. The internet was the accelerant, which democratized all of the disinformation and misinformation and diminished the experts. Democratization has led to the abandonment of standards for testing beliefs. It leads people to think they are just as good at reasoning about something as anybody else, but they're not. At the doctor's office, I don't ask for the data and reason through it myself and decide on the course of treatment. It takes expertise and experience to make that judgment. Just like I can't fly my own plane. There's a scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where he is in the room with all these goblets and chalices and doesn't know which one is the Holy Grail. That's where we are right now. We have the truth right in front of us, but we don't know which one it is. There is a slogan that science deniers use, do your own research. If science is about facts, why can't I just go out and find my own facts? But you need guidance to know what is factual. You need experts. Many Americans have an enormous misunderstanding about science generally. They misunderstand the term theory, for instance, thinking that any theory is as good as any other, rather than realizing that some theories are more credible than others because they are warranted by the evidence. End quote. I, I just think this, this, the role of media as being this intermediary between information 
and the public, identifying when important information has come to light, interpreting it, making it accessible, and and getting it in front of our eyes. Folks really need to to understand the importance of that of media as as gatekeepers, as media as really fundamental in terms of the health of our democracy. As a reporter and even as an editor, uh, if I'm speaking with experts, first talking if they special if the expert specializes in climate change or wherever else economics, my job is to break down the jargon. So if there's any jargon, it's my job to break it down. And this is where I think the advantage for a journalist not to know, you know, so. I, you know, I admit that my ignorance about my ignorance about climate change, but that's a bonus. <laughs> that's a bonus for the reader or the consumer, because if I don't understand it, that's going to prompt me to ask probing questions and ask the expert to break down uh, the details uh, to a level where I can understand those details. So I typically say, break it down to me as if I were a toddler. So if I can understand the information, then it enables me to disseminate that information or communicate that to the public. As you've noticed with a number of stories, uh, hyperlinks. So if there's a study, uh, I told reporters as well as my students to uh, use the primary source. So if I'm reporting a story, yes, I will attribute, but I will also hyperlink it to the direct source. So if there's a study, the reader or the consumer can access that information for him or herself if there are any questions. And that also increases the credibility uh, of the journalist as well. When I interviewed journalists and editors from national newspapers, one of the things that kept popping up over and over again was what I called the flattening of the news because there's a paper newspaper where there's a fold And so the important thing is front page above the fold. But when everything is online and the stories move around so much and the digital editors can goose a story in order to get the numbers up, we lose the ability to accurately gauge what is important and what is not. And so the front page, whatever that is, and there's probably dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of different incarnations of a front page in a given day now online, you know, they will have the main story and that will be vitally important. But around it, you get not only analysis, which is tied to it. And sometimes people may not see that, you know, opinion or analysis label at the top and get confused. Um, or it may be something completely irrelevant, but interesting, you know, and so you get the, you know, we are at war and this is what it means. And this is what the Pentagon said. And a whale fell in love with a cruise ship, you know, and it's all kind of on the front page. And you're thinking, okay, what do I, what, where do I go first? I'm going to go for the whale because that seems like fun. And also like war is sad. And and so we're going to go for the whale story because it's been goosed on the front page. Yes, You, you, you raise a very, an uh, important point. That is problematic. Yeah. Uh, with the uh, newspaper, it was just clear. It was sectionalized in a manner where uh, there was no confusion, you know, but with the online content is different, even though a number of operations tend to use these tabs or widgets, you know, uh, at the top, but still uh, you encounter, yeah, we tend to encounter that. In fact, there's a site I was checking out today and, and the very thing that you just described, I saw as well. So, Michael, what are you most excited about for the future of journalism? I would say that young that the younger generation are becoming increasingly socially aware and and young people are still pursuing journalism as a as a uh, profession, despite uh, the the financial challenges in the industry. I think that's that's encouraging. Michael, you've been very generous with your time and we want to make sure we get you out of here. But can you give us some parting thoughts about the importance of journalism in the U.S.? Journalism is a noble profession uh, when done responsibly. And as a result, our country reaps the benefits. And I would go as far to say that journalism is the glue uh, that holds our democracy together. We can't have a democracy without um, a, a an effective uh, and responsible media. 
Thomas Jefferson said that, you know, well-informed people can govern themselves if they have access to the free press. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And I think that is, I think the media is vitally important. As I'm saying this, I recall what uh, uh, Souter, the former, the retired Supreme Court justice say, you know, democracy cannot stand too much ignorance. So journalism is, is vitally important to the survival of our democracy. Michael, we know we have to let you go, but we were so happy to have your perspective on this for this episode. Thank you so much for accepting our, our invitation and for coming on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I thought that was fantastic. Of course, I'm, I'm prone to thinking that's fantastic because I like talking about this stuff. But um, I thought that uh, Professor Dees was knowledgeable and he sure helped me clarify, particularly the workings of a newsroom and how, um, how we can make sure that the news that we're reading has been fact-checked and ascertained to be actually good news, even if it's bad, even if it's sad, it's still good news. I agree. And before we go, let's say hi to all of our listeners. We are now being listened to in most U.S. states in over 233 different cities. So thank you so much to everybody for supporting us. We really, really appreciate it. We are also being listened to now in 15 countries. So in addition to the U.S., we want to say hi to the U.K., Japan, France, Germany, India, Nepal, Lebanon, Aruba, Slovenia, Italy, Jamaica, Ecuador, Russia, and Norway. If you're listening to us, you know where to find the podcast. You can get us pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and, and a variety of others. You can also find us at utterlymoderate.com. And if you visit utterlymoderate.com, not only can you listen to episodes, but there's an episode archive. Every episode has companion resources. So if you want a much deeper understanding of the topics that we're talking about, visit the episode archive and you can click on all the links that we provide to give you that deeper dive. We also have a really great quality news section, which provides you a really great guide. We have 18 sites on there, news sites on there that have been uh, analyzed by independent analysts and have been shown to be really high quality, reliable, uh, limited bias news sources. So check that out. And there's a bunch of other stuff on the website. There's information about me and Allie and the academic work that we do. Uh, there's some really great readings, uh, some great videos we've posted. So, uh, again, if, if you listen to our podcast, you know where to get us. But um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you can also visit us at utterlymoderate.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. I think it's time to say goodbye, Allie. Goodbye, Allie. Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully.